being housing insecure is already intersectionality because you're not just housing insecure because you wanted to be. You're housing insecure because there's so many other things that have happened to lead to this, which is a part of your identity because it's out of your control. Hello and welcome to Shred the Should podcast. I'm your host, Alex Katz, coach, speaker, and shredder of should. Today we are joined by Brie Chance. Hello. Hi. Hello. (laughs) And I'm so excited for Brie to be here. So background on this one, Brie is one of my former students when I used to work at UConn and she's doing some big things and she just interviewed me and then we were like, you know what? I want to interview her. Come on my podcast. Let's talk. So trigger warning for today. We're going to be talking a little bit about housing insecurity, which you all know is a topic I care a lot about. And Brie has a really powerful voice in this space and I'm excited for her to bring it. So Brie, how would you, this is a question I ask all my guests, um, without telling me what you do, how would you describe who you are? That is a really, really good question. And a lot of cool like verbs just came to mind. Um, So without telling you what I do, I am a noisemaker. (laughs) I am a role model for younger children. And I'm a mover and a shaker. Like I'm all over the place. I'm a creator. Um, Yeah, yeah. Ooh, I, I love that. Those are different words than I've heard people answer before. So I like that. So to give people a little more context on that, what what do you do? So what's what does it mean? You're a noisemaker. Like tell me, tell me about all these things. What is it that you're doing right now in life? Yeah. So I guess like the noisemaker part, it kind of doubles. So I am a opera singer and I'm a musician. Um, I'm a classical musician. I've been doing it for 10, 11 years, and I study it at the University of Connecticut. Um, And also I do social justice and I do this through art. So one of the ways I do it is through Black Haven, a Black-centered film festival that happens annually in New Haven, Connecticut. So we get a bunch of different Black creatives that submit all of their short films. We do a little showing, we have awards at the end. It's really just a way to boost the brown and black agendas in terms of cinematography. So that's kind of the noisemaker justice side of the art that I do. And then of course the literal art that I do is singing or playing instruments Um, and shaker and mover constantly running around. Um, I'm a substitute teacher at three different elementary schools in Connecticut. And I substitute anywhere from kindergarten all the way to eighth grade usually in special education rooms or with general education classrooms. And um, yeah, my goal is to become a music teacher. So that's where the noisemaker, shaker, creator thing kind of all comes together. So I try to integrate art um, and social justice, but also using it to propel like younger generations. And I get that a lot through working with kids um, as a sub teacher and yeah, doing my clinical rotations in education, so yeah. Super cool. I love all of that. And it's also cool for me. I'm having this like proud former, like whatever you want to call me, advisor or mentor, whatever. I mean, always a mentor, but you know, I'm having this proud moment of just seeing how 
much you've grown and what you're doing and how you're trying to use your experiences to help create change and impact the world, which I love. And I think one of the ways you're currently doing that is this documentary too that I want you to talk about today because I think it's so cool. And so it, it was just also really cool for you to be like, hey, I'm doing this thing. Can I interview you for it? And I'm like, you go, Bri. So can you talk a little bit about what what did we just do? We just recorded for like an hour before this podcast. So what what is this project? What is happening here? Yeah, so we're already warmed up, which is cool. <laughs> um, so this project that I'm doing is called Housing Injustice. And um, I want to thank, of course, the people that were able to make it happen. So I received a research grant slash scholarship. It's kind of two in one um, through an organization called Bold Women's Leadership Network. And this is something that they do in colleges across the United States, where they select a cohort of female or female identifying individuals that have a project that they want to pursue. And they're called passion projects. So my passion project, I automatically knew when I applied that I wanted to do something about housing insecurity and homelessness at the college level. So I was given a grant and I was told to make a project. And my project is going to be a documentary series of about four or five episodes, interviewing people that have endured housing insecurity, homelessness, or have experience with that. And just putting a person, a personified perspective on the quality, on the quantitative data that I've gathered so far. So a lot of my work before the actual pre-production started was just trying to get the statistics on how many people are enduring housing insecurity, houselessness, homelessness, um, are struggling in transitional housing right now and don't really know where to go. It's really hard to find those statistics though because it is so gray. It's not black and white. No one's ever gonna just come up to you and be like, hey, I'm couch surfing. There's not really good ways to quantify that. So that part of the research was what propelled me to be like, you know what, instead of writing a research paper and trying to get IRB or research approval, I'm gonna make it qualitative and I'm gonna take all of that quantitative data and I'm gonna mesh those two together. Um, because I noticed that a lot of the research was coming from one source, which is a great source, um, which is the Hope Center and it's awesome. It's great. Sarah Goldrick Robb's work is amazing. However, there needs to be a lot more and there needs to be, I don't want to say put a face to put a face or a story or a narrative to these statistics, but we need to understand that this is not, these people aren't just numbers. And that's primarily why I wanted to do a documentary talking about these experiences to see, to see that all of these different phenomenon can happen at varying degrees for various people, which is exactly why we don't have black and white statistics. So that's what I'm doing. Um, hopefully the end goal is that all five episodes will be on YouTube um, for streaming. And then there will also be a digital photo journal for people to view within their own homes, but I'll also make about 200 copies of a real photo journal with all of the quotes and all of the different experiences that people were sharing in addition to all the research that I have gathered so far. Oof, you brought me back to grad school with the IRB stuff because literally <laughs> that was my grad school capstone was trying to identify resources and programs that currently existed to support students experiencing these things. And there was not a lot. It was it was not it was not a thing. Um, 
So I'm glad that you're doing this. And when you asked me when we were recording before and you asked, you know, what currently exists, I I was struggling, you know, I was like, well, there's, there's, wait, you know this, you know this, you know, it's like, you're, you're kind of like, wait, you have the answer, you have, can I look at my notes? But really, like, I think that also came from a place of, I really don't know, because there's not a lot. And the thing that I was trying to say, very politically correctly, is that there are things on paper And it doesn't mean that that's actually what's being done. So I mentioned how like a lot of universities in the state of Connecticut are required to have a point of contact. And I helped write that legislation. Yay. But like, you know, that doesn't mean that that's being done. Right. So somebody might be a point of contact on paper. But do people even know that that resource exists? Are they actually doing anything? Or is it just like, hey, I'm filling out this form. Do students feel safe using that resource? So I think what you're doing is really important because, yeah, there's not great data on it. There are not great programs to help students. I was one of my clients was like, hey, my cousin is experiencing this right now and she lives in this state across the country. What do you know about that state? And I was like, I don't. But let me let me research for you. And there was there was nothing. So. You know, I think it, a lot of it depends on where you are. But to your point about putting a face behind it, like, yeah, that's how I got into this. Because as I mentioned when we were recording, everybody wanted to use my face, you know. And I mentioned how I, when we were recording, I mentioned how it's like, yeah, I'm this white girl from a middle class town who worked 80 hour weeks. So I checked all the boxes for everyone's narrative of like, look, this can happen to students like this and we need to help them. And that doesn't really help like a lot of students. There are all these marginalized students who don't fit their their narrative that they're looking for that are not getting the help that they need. And so, you know, I, I've been asked, like people have asked me before, what does homelessness look like? And I think there's no one look, right? There's, but we like to stereotype it. So I think what you're doing is super important. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, it's also been It's been challenging too, as someone who has experienced this phenomena multiple times, it's really hard to kind of advertise this project and be like, hey, I'm making a documentary, share your trauma with me because the goal is not to exploit people, right? The goal is to create and generate conversation around these experiences so that way we can go on to larger projects. And like I was telling you earlier, Alex, like, the big picture for me is I want there to be a community house. I want there to be a community house where people can stay for a couple of weeks, some sort of impromptu transitional housing. And a lot of universities have done this before. I mean, I went to um, USC last summer and there's the Bruin shelter, the Trojan shelter. I've seen these places in the flesh. I've talked with the people and I'm like, wow, this is something that could actually happen. But especially for a state like Connecticut, where, I mean, we're a pretty rich state, no college is going to be so gung-ho about being like, let's have free housing for students because um, actually no one is houseless. No one's homeless here. No one is housing insecure. Like college students don't go through that. So it's been hard to kind of gain participants who want to be sharing their experiences and also advertising it to an untrained eye. Um, That can be really difficult. So thank you for letting me interview you. It definitely is helping me move this process along. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started talking about this stuff back in 2014 because I realized nobody was and they wanted me to be a face. So I'm like, cool, I'll be your face so that we can then get more faces that don't look like me into this conversation at some point. So I think that that's really important. And I think 
to your point, it is really hard to get people to talk about it because like you said, either people don't identify or there's a lot of shame and stigma and yeah, like our universities even actually admitting that this is what's happening because like we talked about, I've heard otherwise in places that I will not name currently, right? But I think that in order for us to create change, we first have to acknowledge that there is an issue. And I think what I always what I always do is I compare issues of housing and security on college campuses to rape culture on college campuses. And so more trigger warnings for folks. But like, honestly, if we look at this, so I, I went to UConn when the whole um, lawsuit happened about how they were handling instances of students reporting sexual assault on campus. Like those were my friends actually (laughs) that were in the lawsuit, right? So, and I remember the response at the time and the response was very much like not our campus. Like that doesn't happen here. I remember holding up a sign that says rape happens to Huskies because that was in direct uh, response to, to that. And so you know, it's very easy for folks to be like, that doesn't happen here, not our campus, not our students. And I've seen that happen with housing insecurity as well, where we say, no, that doesn't happen here. Like if if that's happening here, then rich parents aren't going to want to send their kids here because like what kind of students do we have here, which goes back to like the stigma and the stereotypes around who's experiencing this. And so it's like, well, if we had a program, then that's admitting that that happens here. And we can't admit that because that looks bad, just like with reporting sexual assault, actually, if your numbers are higher, that means your students feel more comfortable disclosing because you have good resources. It's acknowledging that rape happens on every campus. Sexual assault happens on every campus. Housing insecurity happens on every campus. And so you can either continue to deny it or you can kind of get ahead of the curve and say, let's create resources because these students are here and they do deserve to be here. Like you and I talked a lot about sense of belonging during that recording. And you asked me like, how do you make students feel like they belong on campus? So I want to, I want to ask you, like, how do you have a student experiencing housing insecurity feel like they belong, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to jump off of your point real quickly before I talk about this, but the people that are denying the problem are the problem nine times out of 10. Um, We wouldn't be having these cases of students falling through the cracks if people weren't so damn skeptical about it actually happening. Like, yes, it happens, accept it. So many, so many other students are going to be protected if you just let them know like, yeah, this is a thing and we have supports in place for that. So when you were saying that, that was just going through my head. But in terms of finding a sense of belonging, Oh, girl, this is a big one because, uh-uh, uh-uh, this is a big one. Um, I think what I would have, you know, when I was first going through housing insecurity and I had yet to find that sense of belonging, I think what students really need is someone that they can actually see level with eye to eye. Doesn't matter if you're the same age, doesn't matter if you're the same university, just to have someone that's like, yo, I've been there. You know, and I feel like for me, that sense of belonging didn't come until I met you, Alex. Like I felt like everything that I was experiencing was a fever dream. I was like, this is just a really weird day. And then I was like, oh no, it's a really weird year. Oh no, it's a really weird five years. And I think finding that sense of belonging comes from connecting with someone that has that similar 
understanding and could demonstrate empathy, real empathy, not just, oh, I'm an empath. <laughs> I'm so empathetic. Like, no, you, if you do not have experience with this and you cannot, you know, contribute to the conversation and you cannot say, hey, I've been there too. And let's talk about this for me personally, then there's no belonging. And I felt like in my own experience, I really needed someone who could just be like, yeah, it sucks. Yeah. And you're not alone because I'm also going through that to have people that are also experiencing something to some degree, whether it's you're through the foster care system or your first generation and you're estranged from your family, or if you're declared by the government as an independent student, you know, those kind of things, those stories and those, those patterns in people's lives, they're slightly different, but they all connect in some way of like, yeah, we're on our own. We're on our own and we feel like we're on our own. So I feel that, you know, creating student organizations is really important. Um, creating caring communities um, was something that I got into and I kind of helped rebuild after it became inactive. And having that there and being able to have conversations with people really helped me find that sense of belonging because I was like, okay, great. I'm not crazy for feeling the way that I feel. And there were even people that came in and out and they were like, you know, I can't really even relate to this, but I'm here to learn. And that above anything, like that created that sense of belonging. Cause I was like, even the fact that you're willing to listen and you're not skeptical about my experiences. Once you're skeptical about my experiences and how I'm really feeling, you're, it's clear that you're looking to gaslight me. You may not know that, but by saying, oh, like that doesn't really happen. Or I can't believe that happened to you. Like at that point, I feel like I don't belong. So being able to tap into a community, even if it's just one other person that you can talk to, like Alex, you were my mentor throughout all of this, to be able to talk to you about that, that was where I found that belonging. And I also think as teachers, as educators, now as I'm shifting into becoming like a real teacher in the real world, when students come to you and they're telling you things that are going on in their life, listen to them. Don't give them unsolicited advice. The first thing you need to do is ask them, do you want me to respond or do you want me to just listen? That's a huge part of belonging. And I'm learning that now with younger students because they will just tell you everything. And it's like, it's just so interesting now to be an adult and just sitting there and listening can do so much to someone. And I feel like that's something that didn't happen for me up until I met you. And yeah, I feel like that's what belonging is about. Being able to be empathetic in a realistic way, not just to be empathetic because it's politically correct, if that makes sense. Is that what you felt like was happening before? Like you would try to talk to people and there, you had that like political correctness going on? Yeah, I felt like it was <laughs> a kind of being thrown back and forth from office to office, retelling my story, you know, and having the person put their hand on your shoulder and say, I hear you. That kind of stuff really, really gets on my nerves because I'm like, you clearly don't hear me though, because you haven't come up with a way to help me and you haven't been able to really see my story for what it is you've just been listening to the artificial details and thinking okay how how can I not to throw my college under the bus but to throw them under the bus because you know I don't work there they can't kick me out um I feel like the the people at UConn were like how can I cover UConn's ass and make you leave my office just feeling a little bit better, but not really actually helping you. 
you know, like how can I twist your arm enough to make you think that you're a little crazy, first of all, and uh, two, it's all going to be okay. Yukon will take care of you. I felt like that was what was happening. And it really did make me think, you know, through all the political correctness that they were trying to, you know, I hear you, I get it. They were trying to cover their own asses and didn't actually help me. And I was like, if you're not willing to risk your, if you're not willing to risk your own ego in your own position to like really help a student who doesn't have the literal first tier of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, then F you, you don't actually care. And then I met you and I was like, wow, here is this person who is you know, storing canned goods in their office and storing socks and scarves and menstrual products and saying, hey, yo, come to my office. Like I've got Uncle Ben's rice and 15 boxes of it for you. You know, like no one did that. Like that stuff's super important. And that showed me that was a marker of trust. And that was a marker of, she doesn't care about being politically correct. She cares about actually making a difference. And I think that is what creates the sense of belonging, the safety, the trust that these students need when they're going through these sorts of things. So, yeah. Uncle Ben's rice is where it's at every time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but no, I definitely get that. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, and you figured that out about me pretty quickly where I was just like, I really don't give a shit. Like I'll get fired, but I'm going to help you. <laughs> so. And it means so much too, because like, I am also kind of, I'm kind of like that with my own students. I'm like, I don't care. You need to ride home. I'm going to take you home. Like you're not walking in the dark, you know, like that kind of thing. And I've had teachers like that when I was in elementary school. I remember being in um, the fourth grade band and we had band practice until like 6 p.m. And my mother, my biological mother would forget to pick me up. She would forget or she'd be like, no, you're too far. Like take the bus. And I was a minor and my band teacher was literally like hop in my car. I'm taking you home. And that's what I was used to. I was used to teachers and adults like bending the rules and, you know, you know, putting themselves on the line to help me. And I was like, that's the kind of teacher I want to be. Like, that's the kind of person I want to be. Like at the end of the day, if there's someone suffering, you know, like you do what it takes to help them. And I, I think that's just so important and it is tricky. It is tricky in higher education because it is very prestigious. Um, but still like, I think they need to tap into their humanity every once in a while. And sometimes if you have to like hide a fucking box of uncle Ben's in your like storage cabinet, do it. It's not going to, babies are not going to die. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's hard. So if somebody's listening to this and they're like, well, I want to help, but I haven't experienced anything like this. Does that just mean like no student's going to listen to me? I, I don't think so. Right. So what, what can they do? I know you mentioned just, just sitting and listening, but like, what else do you feel like, let's say I didn't exist. So what else do you feel like would have really helped turn that experience around for you? Like there's no Alex with the uncle Ben's rice. (laughs) Well, I think another thing that people can be doing is, you know, speaking to their colleagues and speaking to the people at their level and being like, Hey, I won't say who, but I have a student that came in and is going through all these things. What is something that we can do to kind of come together to help this student, because honestly, you don't have to do it alone. You know, like nothing ever happens in isolation when it comes to this kind of stuff. And you know, that saying it takes a village to raise a child. I feel like it takes a village to help students 
that are enduring housing insecurity or homelessness, because again, that basic level, it's not there. They don't have the foundation. So tapping into your colleagues and being like, can we throw together a couple items or can we figure out a transportation plan or can we maybe sit in a meeting with them and maybe just talk about some different options and I don't know, really just try to tap into the community you already have and try to create greater good. Um, and if that is not an option, try looking into other organizations that are catered to the specific problem at hand. So for instance, if there is like a teen group local to your community, like maybe refer the student to that and be like, hey, I know you're going through such and such right now, but there's this group of students that meets every Wednesday and they do all this stuff and you can find a community in that. I mean, students that are going through this kind of thing, they're super determined, right? But at the same time, everything that they do takes so much more energy because they're balancing so much more on top of it. So yeah. for someone, I don't know, for someone to go out and be part of a community, like the fear of having to explain your entire story to someone, like that's always there. So I think just allowing yourself to lean into your colleagues, but also if that's not available, try to find other spaces where you can then get the student to connect with other people who have a similar identity, um, that was really helpful for me. I remember you introduced me to a couple of other students and even that was better than nothing because I was like, okay, cool. I'm not completely alone. That stuff is super important, just connecting to other people and doing your research, doing your research and trying to understand your community and knowing what is available and what isn't available because there's no use in telling a student, oh, just stay at a shelter. Yeah, that's a great idea, except there's no shelters that take minors, like that kind of stuff. You have to actually know what you're talking about before you sit in and try to start offering advice. Because at that point, if you haven't done your research, the advice is just unsolicited and it's not really helping the student. Um, so I would say those things. I think all of those things are important. And you made me think of something I wish I'd said when we were recording for your documentary, which is that housing insecurity is often a symptom of a greater issue. So I talked a little bit about the need to look at a student holistically, but I also think that to your point, you know, doing your research and understanding the resources and all, you know, taking a multidimensional approach, that's so, so important because what I saw a lot in my position was, well, if we just give the student housing, then everything's fixed or like food insecurity, right? Food insecurity was a really big discussion, is a big discussion on a lot of college campuses. And the idea is like, oh, well, Alex just had her food pantry or her, we, we couldn't call it a food pantry, right? Her, um, her closet of Uncle Ben's rice. And, you know, there's this idea that if we just give a student food, then they're no longer food insecure. Or if we just give them somewhere to live, then they're no longer housing insecure. And it's like, cool, yes, that's a step, but that's not how that works. Like I, I mentioned how, you know, I, I was helping students with not just housing and food, but like okay, where are you right now mentally? Because you're probably in survival mode and you're got, you've got some fight, flight, freeze going on and let's figure out where you are, meet you where you are because you can't really make decisions if you're in that mindset. 
you probably don't have any family, you probably don't have any role models, you're probably afraid to ask for help, you probably don't know how to self-advocate, you're probably used to doing everything on your own, you're probably having issues with financial aid, you probably haven't registered for your classes, the list goes on, and so people are just kind of like, here's a box of Uncle Ben's rice, you're good to go now, and I'm always trying to get people to understand, like, no, this is a symptom. So, like, for me, when I did finally get housing, that didn't erase everything else that I was going through. That didn't erase, like, the trauma of separating from my parents. That didn't erase, like, feeling like I was completely alone. Like you were saying, I couldn't talk to anybody about it. That's the reason why. So for anyone listening, Creating Caring Communities is a student organization I created as a staff member. And... Uh, that's the reason why when I was a senior in college, I wanted to create something like that because there was nobody else. I didn't know anybody else and it was just me. So it is really helpful to have others that you can relate to that are going through it. But sense of belonging has been linked. There's so much research on it has been linked to student retention. And, you know, do you feel like you belong here? That's going to determine whether or not you graduate. So I didn't feel like I belonged. I didn't have any family. I didn't have anywhere to go for holidays. I was lonely as fuck all the time. I was like, why am I the only one experiencing this? I know you want to talk about gaslighting and I do too, but I felt like I was being gaslit by everyone all the time. Felt like I had to hide my experiences. I was, (laughs) food insecurity was interesting because even when I had food, people were like, cool, she has food. But as somebody with celiac, most of the food I had was not gluten-free. And I was just kind of like, I'll take what I can get. And it's fine. And didn't realize how much damage I was doing to my health. So there are so many layers to this. And I'll say on that, like, that's why when I was doing food drives, I had people come up with shopping lists. I remember asking you, what is it that you want? Because you lose all autonomy when you're just eating whatever you can find in a food pantry. If you like Uncle Ben's rice and like, Krispy Kreme donuts or what I don't I'm making stuff up but like I want to make sure that you're able to eat the food that like matches your culture that matches your dietary needs that matches what you like and then going back to the gaslighting piece there's a lot of like well if you're in that situation you can't be picky right you should just take what you can get so yeah I'm gonna let you go off on this one but like I that's why I'm so intentional with how I do things and why I do things you know yeah oh my gosh sustainability 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 that is the core that is at the core especially with food insecurity oh because because there's people like we were talking about it's not just housing insecurity and isolation there's a lot of other things that are happening on top of it and i'll use myself as an example like on top of being housing insecure I have eating disorders. I'm the disordered eater. I overeat, then I undereat. It's a problem. And I've had it for as long as I can remember. I can't do anything about it, but be intuitive about what I eat. So when there were those times where I was like eating ramen and Cheez-Its out of my dorm and my face was breaking out and I was gaining weight, I was like, oh, this is awful. So I wouldn't eat. And I was like, well, now you're not eating. And then I remember you know, reaching out to one of my professors and saying, I'm staying in the dorm over winter break. And, you know, God bless her. She was so great. She ordered me, like she sent me all of these different groceries. And I was so relieved because it was actually like home cooked food that she had sent me. And she had made me like asparagus with um, rice and beans and chicken. And I was like, wow, like I technically don't even eat meat, but you know what? I'm going to eat it because I'm hungry. And it was the first time I had a 
like a really home cooked meal in about two years. And that was really hard because I was like, I don't even remember what it's like to eat food that has like flavor that isn't artificial. And that was when I was like, you really have to get on top of your eating habits and you really have to level out your disorder because it's never going to go away, but you have to learn how to live with it. And living in a dorm, eating ramen for breakfast, lunch, and dinner just exacerbated the problem. And then when we went into COVID, I was like, well, guess I won't go buy groceries. I guess I'll just order out, which further exacerbated the weight gain and all of the other things that I was already concerned about before I had started enduring housing insecurity. So being able to find sustainable solutions, not just, okay, here's a little packet of sopachina or ramen, you know, like you really have to think about these choices. So I just remember, you know, going on that huge chopping trip where we got all those lists and compiled them. And we went into like the international food section and I was like, grab as many Goya products as you can. Like, because the demographic of people that are going through this are used to these cultural foods. And I, it's, it's really important to, to consider all of the different dimensions of that. It really is interdisciplinary in that sense. Um, but yeah, should we talk about the, the gaslighting? Because I feel like that's a big one. Yeah, I have a lot to say on food insecurity and disordered eating, but we can come back to it. <laughs> Oh, no, let's do Let's finish that up and then we'll go over to, to the right. next one. So I'm just thinking like as you're talking, I mean, you know, I've done a lot of pivots in since leaving UConn and like my business. And now I work a lot with folks experiencing disordered eating. And something I always talk about is the link between food insecurity and disordered eating because, well, one, that's something I have experienced. But like, two, there's a lot of research on that where if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, you don't have access to like culturally appropriate foods or you don't have access to foods that you need due to dietary restrictions, whatever, your brain does kind of go into that survival fight or flight mode and sees food as, you know, anytime there's like a restriction mindset behind food, you start craving foods, right? So that's something that I've seen come up with a lot of my clients, whether it's food insecurity and just that ramen cycle in college or food insecurity um, when they're younger, if their family is low income, right, whatever it might be. But that's that's a really big part of it. And, you know, you asked me about mental health and food insecurity on, during the documentary. And it's like that is a part of your mental health. And that's important. And that's where, you know, when I was in high school, I ran a club called Empty Bowls and we used to do food drives every year. And I thought I was doing great. I like had all these cans of like the, the ravioli and the beans and, the you know, whatever the things are. But like. When we do food drives, it's always the stuff that's left in the back of people's pantries that they don't want. That is what you're getting. And so when we go back to sense of belonging, is that the message that we're giving to students? Because it's like, oh, I just did a good thing. I just donated to this food drive. Here's all this food. And the student's like, great. I either can't eat this or I've had this can of ravioli every day for the last month. And I can't tell you, you know, like if you need to hear it, like you're definitely not alone in that experience because I can't tell you how many students, myself included at that time, come out of situations like this with disordered eating habits and like, yeah, me too, binging and that whole cycle and then then trying to get my health in check and then food fears and then health issues and then food fears and then like eating all these things with celiac and destroying my gut and like 95% of your serotonin is made in your gut. So what we're eating is important, but I'm going to segue into gaslighting here, like we're being given this message that 
our food needs don't matter, that we should just be grateful to have anything. Doesn't matter where you're sleeping, what you're eating. Like if you have something, you should be grateful for it. And I definitely subscribed to that for a while. Like I was just eating people's food scraps and I was like, wow, so grateful. Thank you. You know, or it's like, you know, I found I'm sleeping in a car, I'm sleeping on the floor, whatever. And like that can be kind of toxic. And I've even said those things before. So I want to hear kind of your experiences, whatever you want to share with gaslighting and just, you know, I guess that's that's a should, right? We talk about should shredding, but like one of the ways people gaslight is you should just be grateful, right? For anything when like they've never even had to experience it. Yeah. And it's, it kind of relates to the beggars can't be choosers complex. Oh my God. I hate that saying. I hate it so much because I'm like, absolutely false beggars are choosers. Everybody is a chooser because you should have a choice on what you consume. You should have a choice of where you live and how you're living your life. We all deserve that choice. So the beggars can't be choosers complex makes me so sad. Um, especially when it comes to things like this. And then also in terms of the gaslighting, I think once you start to know your, your rights, so to speak, like, Hey, you know, I have disordered eating or I have dietary restrictions, so I can't actually accept this food. People will then say, Oh, well, I thought you were in a place where you needed this. So clearly you don't, you don't need that. You're not, you're not that hungry. And it's, that's not true. That's just not true. Um, And I've been in positions where people have taken me into their homes. So I did a lot of, I'm a very uh, professional couch surfer. That's my, that's my title. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what you do without telling me what you do. (laughs) (laughs) So I remember when I was couch surfing, it was the best and worst thing I've ever experienced. It was the best because I always knew that I had a place to go, but it was the worst because I was in a constant state of people pleasing. And um, when I didn't please people, they gaslit me and they were like, oh, well, clearly you're not struggling that badly if you can call the shots. You know, if you feel like you run this place. And I'm like, no, man, I just have boundaries. That's the difference between you and me. Like, I'm not afraid to put up my boundaries. Um, and I remember. Uh, specifically when I started living with, um, I call her my foster mom. I was never in the foster care system, but it just makes for vernacular, makes it a little bit more comprehensible. So when I started living with my foster mom two years ago, so now I'm stable. I have my own place and which is awesome. I'm so thankful, but I will go back to their house for holidays and things like that. So whenever I talk about my experience of dealing with housing insecurity, she'll say things like, okay, but you weren't homeless. Like you had a home you had a home here. And I was like, no, I, I didn't because I, I didn't live with you three years ago. Like three years ago, I was living in a dorm. Like me staying with you guys is relatively new. And I know it feels like we've been together our whole lives, but that's just not the case. Like I was 19 years old when I came to stay with you guys. And I started being housing insecure when I was 16, not even when I was 15, I spent four years not being with you guys. So to say, oh, but you had a home. I don't know why you didn't just come over here. You should, you should have just come stayed with us. And I'm like, I didn't know that was an option. And I didn't know, I didn't know what resources I had because quite frankly, I didn't want to talk about my situation. So when I tap back into, you know, who, who I was when I was literally a teenager and I'm like, I'm doing this project and I'm doing all these things for my teenage self and my child self. 
And it's hard to talk about those things with my new foster family. Cause I'm like, you guys didn't know me at that point. I was a completely different person because I had completely different circumstances. And when I talk about that and you say, well, you always had a home here. That's kind of gaslighting my experience. Like I'd hate to, I'd hate to say that about people I love, but it's basically saying the last five years of your life were a dream. The last five years of your life did not happen. It's like I'm being brainwashed sometimes. And that kind of relates to why this project is so difficult sometimes for me, because I'm like, did that really happen? Or was that just a really bad point of your teenage years? And were you being stubborn? And were you, and I place a lot of blame on myself because of what my fam, my new family will say. Um, and, you know, that's something that, you know, still happens today. And I need to talk to them about that. But I mean, those things, those things are really hard when you finally reach a stable place. And then you try to remember where you come from. Cause I, I'm super big on that. Like always remember where you come from, be grateful where you came from and be excited for where you're going. But it's hard to look back on where you came from when people are constantly giving you this noise, this white noise saying, no, 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 that didn't happen because everything's okay now. Right. So that, that didn't happen. What, what did you hear something like that stuff's really a problem. So within the family, that can be hard, but also gaslighting from people outside of your immediate circle. Um, so recently, so I recently bought a camera for this project. Now, mind you, I know nothing about photography. Um, so I told my friend, like, let's go to the park. Let's take some shots. Like, let's bring your dog and just have like a cool day. It's going to be great. And as I was taking pictures, this old man comes up to me. He's very sweet. He's very nice. And he goes, I would like to speak to the photographer. And I'm like pulling his leg because I'm obviously not a photographer. I'm just taking pics of my friend to practice with his camera. <laughs> and I'm, he's like, um, so can you take a picture of me on my iPhone and with the sun in the background and all the things? And I'm like, yeah, like, you know, I'm hyping him up, making him seem like he really is the shit. And I'm pretending that I'm a legit photographer, which I'm not. And my friend is going along with it. And then after that, the old man, he inquires further and he goes, oh, so you're a photographer, you know, what's, what project are you working on right now? And I'm like, oh, you know, you know, just doing a research project about housing insecurity and homelessness and college populations. And immediately the energy shifted in the conversation. And I could feel like the tension between me and this stranger, complete stranger, never met him. This guy who was literally just like stroking my ego being like, oh my God, you took beautiful pictures of me. Sudden tension, very cold demeanor. And all of a sudden he's like, what are you talking about? Homelessness in college. Like when you think homelessness, you think people on the streets and drugs and impoverished communities. And it's so sad for the families who can't move there with their kids. And I'm like, okay, first of all, way to take an elitist perspective. But two, you're a pure example of the problem because you have not examined your own alma mater closely enough to realize that yeah, there's problems. And yeah, no, it wasn't perfect. Just because you slid by and you had a great time in college doesn't mean that every single person did. In fact, about 14% of the students in the United States are enduring homelessness. And within in the greater picture, about 48% of them are housing insecure in college. So you were one of the lucky ones that didn't have to go through that. And I'm sitting there and I'm baffled because I'm like, I knew that this would come eventually and someone was going to kind of push back. And it has happened in little ways, but it never happened with a complete stranger before. 
in public in front of my friend, by the way, who I'm trying to be like cool for. And I'm like trying to be cool around. I don't want to lose my temper, but it's really hard to have a complete stranger who knows nothing about you be like, oh, that's an imaginary phenomenon, but thank you for sharing. It's like, okay, great. What research have you done? Because I've been doing this research for two years. I've dedicated my entire college experience to not only being in this situation, but getting out of it and now trying to foster and create change around that. And that's really hard. Have you ever tried that? You probably haven't random man on the street. Like that kind of thing with gaslighting can be really, really tricky. And honestly, like, I don't even know how to navigate those situations. I mean, from what my friend told me, he goes, you handled that really well. And you're very calm. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, it didn't, it didn't feel like that inside. And I guess like also intersectionality plays a big role in it too. Um, like I'm a black, queer, Latina female, low income. So like, obviously this man has never been educated by someone like me because he was really shocked when I pulled out the stats. And I told him exactly what I'm telling you, 48% of students in the US endure housing insecurity at some point. And he didn't know what to say at that. And I was like, well, yeah, you spend two, you spend two years sitting behind a computer trying to rake through all of the different um, resources saying that this doesn't exist. You try doing that for two and a half years. It's really fucking hard. So yeah, gaslighting is a, is a problem within our own circles. And it's also a huge problem that the general public is perpetuating. Wow. Yeah. And I'd even go as far to say that that 48% statistic is probably low because people underreport due to shame and stigma due to people like this random man on the street, right? There is so much shame and stigma around it. And, you know, I, I think back to like the surveys that they do, right? Like they do the youth counts, they do all of these surveys. I would never have checked off that I was homeless or housing insecure. I didn't know what that was while I was going through it. And I think part of the issue is that we do normalize this like couch surfing ramen situation as, you know, that's just what students do. So we don't have to do anything about it, you know? And I think to your point, so you're talking about your your foster family and them invalidate your experience. And I've kind of experienced something a little bit similar just from from folks from past lives, right? Past versions of myself. And I think what I've found, and I don't know if this helps and you've probably done this reframe already, but I found that people tend to invalidate your experiences from a place of their own guilt, right? It's like the the white guilt, the survivor guilt. I remember, yo, I remember one time, <laughs> this just came back to me, we were talking and I'm pretty sure I said like, you you felt self self conscious about something with like some one of your friends or like some other student in your situation and you didn't want to be a burden and I asked you if you apologize for being black do you remember that wait tell me about this <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh my god right yeah. I remember that yo yeah oh my goodness so yeah my um. Oh, this is a story. This is a story. This I'm is gonna bring stuff up here for you. <laughs> oh my god, no! Like it's fine. See, There's you a point helped, to it. Yeah, you've helped me significantly. This is like a, a dovetail off of this, but to be able to talk about these things like without falling apart is such a like a freaking privilege now. Like I used to be like I can't, and now I'm like, yeah, this happened, and like this is the facts. So like, thank you for that. But um, oh my god, I was living with my high school best friend 
I was living with one of my high school best friends at the time. And I was bouncing between her house and some kid I was dating in high school. So it was always back and forth. And I didn't really actually didn't, I only had one. I only had one friend who was black in high school and we're still great friends to this day. And I remember living with my friend who was white. And one time I made a slick comment, which I shouldn't have made that slick comment, but I was mad. I was mad about something very simple. Um, and for some reason, which I shouldn't have said this, but you know, I did, I was like, oh, white people, you know, and like, we've all been there. We all do things that, you know, we all say things we're not proud of. Right. But I would be lying to you if I said, I didn't go oh, white people every once in a while, you know? So I said this and it made her mom really, really upset. And her mom like completely shut me out. And her mom was the nicest person too. But um, I already felt like a burden because I was sharing a room with this girl and she was an only child. So she kind of been living the life, you know? She's like, I don't have to share things with other people. You know, I get my whole room to myself. I get my car to myself. It got to a point where she had to drive me to school. Um, I took half of her room and I say I took, I didn't take anything from her, but I feel like I took something from her. See, it's mm. still there, you know? Mm -hmm. I lived in one half of her room and she invited me to live in half of her room. That's the right way to say it. But her mom was so pissed at me that she blocked me out. She just stopped talking to me. And I didn't know that this was a problem. I didn't know that my slick comment and my moment of anger literally set the tipping scale and was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And I never felt like a burden to her mom, but I always felt like a burden to my friend. And when I had said that, I felt that I immediately had to diminish myself and I was like, first of all, what you said was wrong. You shouldn't have said that. First of all, if you're going to talk shit about white people, do not do it around white people. That's like rule number one. Like, don't do that. But at the same time, like as an uneducated, like 15 year old, I mean, what did you expect me to do? I was, I was angry and I was ignorant, but I felt like I had to apologize for being a person of color on top of having to apologize for feeling the way that I felt as a person of color. And it wasn't just the ugh, white people. Yes, that was wrong. However, being able to feel a certain way about an injustice that is way larger than all of us, that is above us all, being able to feel that impact since I was a kid and then reacting in anger and then being blamed for reacting in anger is what made me feel like I had to apologize for being black or I had to apologize for being mixed or being Latina or being dark, you know? So there was that. And I don't, I've never actually ever stayed with a family that wasn't white, come to think of it. I've been taken in by white families my entire life, even to the point where like, I felt like I was white because what I was seeing wasn't a mirror or a reflection of who I am. Mm. And that that cultural difference is really hard to grapple with in any way. I mean, I don't know. You just got to try to put yourself in that situation. It's different. Culturally, it's different. But also just living in someone's house temporarily is already going to bring up challenges. So I've had my fair share of feeling guilty for being Black, feeling guilty for being 
mad at white people, even though they were the people that took me in, but then also feeling guilty for taking them up on their offer, you know, and just having all that come back to me, 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 like I'm the problem. So, you know, what's interesting is that wasn't even the thing I was thinking of. (laughs) Really? Yeah. So, but it's, it shows a lot of the growth you've done, I think, because I was thinking about, I think, potentially, if I remember this correctly, a time where you felt really guilty about the amount of space you were taking up, you were crashing with somebody or doing something, and you felt like a burden for your situation, like the the fact that you were taking up space, the fact that you were being like an inconvenience to somebody, and all this guilt around being housing insecure, being an independent student. And I said, like, would you ever apologize for being black? Like, would you feel bad now I'm like maybe this wasn't you I don't know but I said like would you apologize for being back and you said no and I was like okay that's something that's not in your control so neither is this so why would you feel bad about this right and it's because we're how we're taught to feel about this and I think that's coming from other people and their place of guilt of like hey I don't actually have to experience this you know and I feel bad that you're experiencing this but I don't know how to feel bad from a place of empathy. Yeah. Oh my God. Yep. I know what you're talking about now. See, that just goes to show that there's so much shit that happens like, (laughs) like with intersectionality in general, like, uh, not only being housing insecure, but being a female. And then also if your race plays into it and your sexuality and, oh, there's so much that goes into that, but yeah. And I, it, it all kind of relates to what we were talking about before, how housing insecurity or being estranged from your family. Like there's not just one reason in isolation. There's not just one thing that affects you. That in itself being housing insecure is already intersectionality because you're not just housing insecure because you wanted to be. You're housing insecure because there's so many other things that have happened to lead to this, which is a part of your identity because it's out of your control. I don't know about you. I, I, you know, lived my whole childhood just hoping that one day I would get to play Alex the Spy and sneak into dorm rooms after the cleaning staff. So when my card wasn't working, I could get in there. And I loved staying in toxic relationships because it provided me with a place to live. And I really was just like living in my car because I knew one day it would make a great line for a book. You know, you know what I mean? Like people think it's just like, oh, you must have done something. You must have wanted this. This was intentional, like whatever the thing was. And yeah, so going back to like that guilt and people invalidating, I've had a lot of people from high school since I've started being open about this, doing public speaking, social media, whatever. People have reached out and been like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I wish I knew I would have done something. And they make it about them and their survivor guilt and their experience, right? And it's kind of like what you're saying your your foster family says and does. And so I had this one girl that keeps reaching out and she's like, I wish I knew. I wish I could have helped. I would have done something. And I'm like, one, the people who I felt safe to tell knew. So there's a reason why you didn't know, right? Like that's that's just a thing. Like if you didn't know, it's because I didn't feel safe to tell you. Two, what would you have really have done, right? Because if somebody's hiding the fact that they're experiencing abuse or housing insecurity or whatever, it's because they don't want people to know. They don't want something to be done about it. Not to say that we don't want help, but 
that it's not always that clear cut, right? So like in high school, I was really afraid of ending up in the foster care system. My parents had me so convinced. Actually, my first DCF call was made in middle school and my parents had me so convinced at that point in time that I was unlovable and that the foster care system would just be worse and I would be more abused than I was at home and like it would just ruin the entire trajectory of my life. And like I was in a good school. I was in a good school system. I wanted to stay. I was like, fuck this, fuck them. Like, I'm just going to do really well in school, go to college, whatever. And so, you know, I get a lot of the questions now where it's like, well, why didn't you just do this? You should have done this. You should have done this. Like, you know, when I wrote that op-ed piece in the Hartford Current in 2014 and didn't realize that the Hartford Current was also online because that's, that's my access to the internet at that point in time. But like, you know, I wrote that and people were like, well, you should have just joined the military. You should have just done this. You should have, like, people understand. And it's like, no, it's so multifaceted. It's so complex. People don't know. And then they feel guilty on top of it. So exactly, like, you know, your your foster family saying those things, probably coming from a place of, like, wow, we care about you and you were going through these things and we didn't know and we feel really bad and, like, we want to help and we don't want you to feel like that anymore, but we don't know how to handle and process your emotions and not make it about us and our guilt that we weren't there for you when you needed it. So we're just going to unintentionally invalidate you and make you feel like shit because we care, right? And it's like, I don't think that they actually understand what that does. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those hard lines to cross because it's, it kind of goes back. It's all, this is all very cyclical. This is all a circle. It goes back to the people pleasing, the people pleasing part of me that I unfortunately picked up when I was house hopping because I didn't ever want to step on anyone's toes. And now that I finally hopped to my final house, (laughs) it's like, um, I don't know. I don't want to you know, have that conversation with them necessarily and be like, um, actually you guys are doing this to make yourselves feel better, but don't gaslight me. I just want to please them and say, you know what, like, you're right. And that it was all a dream because I kind of just want to bury it and forget about it. But when, when I think of the project that I'm doing and why I'm doing it, it reminds me why my experience is so important and it should not be silenced, nor should anyone else's experience be silenced. But I think all of that kind of unpacking that we just did leads me back to where I am today. Cause I'm like, yeah, no, let's fucking talk about it. Because if we don't talk about it, we're going to bury these experiences and bury the stories that make us who we are. So very important. Yeah. And I think that there is going back to random man on the street. I think that there is this perception, right? Like you said, of it's, oh, it's drugs and it's alcohol and it's these people and they're in cities and it's, you know, whatever. And it's not college students and college students are entitled and spoiled and lazy and have parents and you know whatever the, the stereotype is, right? And like, I've heard it so many times where people have been like, wait, that exists. Like, I'll tell them what I do. And they're like, that's a thing. That's not a thing. Or like when I wrote the article and people are saying, you should have just done these other things or you should have just joined the military. And it's like, that's not an option for everyone. What if I have a health condition that doesn't allow me to join the military? right? Or what if I just don't want to join the military, right? <laughs> like, let's talk about that. But so every, everybody becomes the expert on what they think that you should do or, oh, you should go to community college. You should have gone. Listen, I went to such a good high school where that wasn't even a thing that was talked about. You know, it's it's like interesting because so my partner, like Zach, Zach told me how in high school, 
he nobody talked to him about the SAT nobody talked to him about college they just were like here's the military entrance exam and that's what you do and just in that same way community college was not a thing like I was a straight A AP student three sport varsity athlete community service out the wazoo like nobody talked to me about community college and it was so stigmatized that like I, I didn't even think it was an option. I didn't even apply. I didn't I knew nothing about it. And I didn't know who to even, I wouldn't have known who to ask, like all this stuff. Anyway, I also, community college would not have been an option because there were no dorms. Like in, in my whole 16, 17 year old brain, I was like, listen, I'm going to do really well in school. I'm going to get into a college. The college is going to have housing. I'm going to leave the situation. I'm going to cut contact with them completely. I'm going to live on campus. We're going to be set for four years with housing until I then get a job and go off in the real world and I can then afford a place to live. But then what happens is you get there and then you find out that campus actually closes down for a week over Thanksgiving break and like what, four to six, I don't even know how many weeks over Christmas break and then a week again in April for spring break and then like three months in the summer and you know I always tried to reframe it and make the best of it like April was cool because everyone was on spring break and I got the whole campus to myself and it was nice out and I got to run and I'm like Haha, I don't have to avoid anybody like you know not trying to avoid buses students whatever but like yeah it sucked I was lonely and like you're there by yourself you have nowhere to live you're you know I had friends who were RAs that just were like here's my key I might get fired but cool which I loved I really appreciated that um they will remain nameless to this day but you know I I did those things and and again it goes back to people being like well you had a place to live you should just be grateful for that but then it's like I was grateful and I felt really alone every single holiday and every single holiday I was like, why don't I have anybody who loves me? Why don't I have anywhere to go? Why am why is this happening again? And also being 17 when I started college, I couldn't get a place of my own and I didn't realize that the dorms were going to shut down all of those times. I had no idea. Maybe I was just ignorant or maybe I was just in survival mode in that point in my life, which many of us are, right? So I, it's just so layered and, you know, I'm all about should shredding, but for anybody to make you or me or anyone who's experiencing housing insecurity feel like they should have done something differently or they should be doing something differently or they should feel a certain type of way, they should think something like whatever the thing is, it's it's just it's not like nobody can tell you any of those shoulds. And then we start imposing those shoulds on ourselves because we're like, gaslighting ourselves like did this really happen did I do something wrong could I have done something differently should I have done something differently and no it's like your experiences are real and they're valid and I love that you're using them to try to bring awareness and change other people's lives you know yeah and honestly like it's it's one of those things that I I know that the work that we are doing is super important but because it is so it's so unrecognized by just a lot of populations. It makes me wonder like, should I, does it even matter anymore now that I'm stable? And I think what's important to remember is like when we do reach that stability or we get somewhat closer to being stable to just remember what you, unfortunately what you went through to get here. So that way you can help people that are gonna be in these situations inevitably because unless there's systematic change, not even just like at the college level, but like at every level, like at the political level, like I said, like housing insecurity really started for me when I was 15 and I called it extended sleepovers at my friend's house, you know, and it was all cute and fun until I wasn't friends with that person anymore. 
And then all of a sudden I was 18 and I haven't, I hadn't gained any skills to like be launched into the real world. And I was officially like, yeah, you are housing insecure. Like you're going through something. But the fact that it started so early and I didn't know what to call it, that in itself is a problem. So I think when we reach that stable level, when we get our footing, remembering that there are going to be people and there are going to be kids and children after you that are going through this. So give them the damn vocabulary they need to advocate for themselves, have these conversations with them. And if someone is coming to you and they're like, hey, yo, this is what I'm going through. Let them know that they are not crazy. (laughs) It's a real thing. And it is okay to be upset at your situation. It is okay to be mad about it. Being upset and mad about your situation is not a crime ever when it comes to this sort of thing. Because at the end of the day, we are all just trying to make the best of what we're given. And some of us aren't given very much. So that's my two cents. Yes, girl. Yes. And so you made me think of something that a lot of people listening probably don't actually know this about me, but they might, but I mentioned it on your documentary. So gonna you know teaser here and then have people go listen to the full thing but like yes that because when I started answering your question about when did I start experiencing housing insecurity I started with the answer that I trained myself to do which was college like got to college and my world just fell apart and that's the answer that I, you know, probably put in that op-ed piece that I wrote because I think that especially if you're going through childhood abuse, you're so trained to not talk about what's going on because it's dangerous or because you've got some sort of manipulation from those people and you're trying to protect them and you're trying to protect them as much, if not more than you're trying to protect yourself. And like their reality is that, yeah, it started in elementary school for me because my parents would just kick me out of the house and be like, hey, bye. And you said extended sleepovers. And I'm talking about my best friend who made me a fort out of cor- cardboard boxes in her basement and hid me from her parents because, you know, that's that was what we thought was smart in like fourth or fifth grade and made me a bed down there. And that was that was it. And like the amount of times I went over there and she was feeding me, she was giving me some more sleep, she was doing whatever. But I never, ever, ever had that vocabulary. I don't even think I had that vocabulary until I was like 27 because I was not, it, and maybe it's the gaslighting thing, but I wasn't, putting that as part of my story ever. It was just kind of like, oh no, you had an address. You put it on your college applications. Like you had a landline, you put that on your college applications. And it's like, cool. But if you come home and your parents are like, you can't sleep here or your parents kick out, kick you out or they change the locks. Or, you know, if you have a, a trash bag of prized possessions hanging out your window because you never know when they're going to let you come home or not. Like you are not housing secure. Like you're, you're just not. And I... I never, ever, ever would have said that that was an issue. One, because I didn't think I could. Two, because I was afraid. Three, because I was trying to protect them. And four, because I just didn't know. I didn't have the language to be like, this is what's happening. And also, if you're somebody who is going through that, chances are your parents are isolating you from other people so that you don't have quality friendships, relationships, whatever, so that you don't know what normal looks like. And I just didn't have a benchmark for normal, you know? Yeah, and I think... I think that everybody who is going through this phenomenon, we're all at these different points in our journeys. And it's so important to remember that when we when we share our stories, when we listen to other people's stories, because where I was when I was 
seven years old was completely different from where you were with the stuff hanging out of your window. Like I didn't, I didn't endure that. However, you know, like housing insecurity is just one of those things where it affects every single person differently. There's no one way that it's going to look. There's no storyline that can be followed explicitly. And I think a lot of us have the tendency to zip it down to it happened. It all happened when I turned 18 years old. Yep. <laughs> right. And I'm like, no, it didn't. Like, really think back to your experiences and honor them and stand in your truth. And I think that can bring up a lot of a lot of wounds, but it can also offer a lot of healing when you reconcile with that. So yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of it depends on how you're looking at it at the time. Like I read a lot as a kid and I read a lot of spy books and I loved Harry Potter and you know, whatever. So I completely normalized everything that I was experiencing because I'm like, oh, cool. Like this person, I think I got the trash bag idea from a book that I was reading. I'm like, oh, this person did this. And so like, I can do this and it's fine. And so like, it was, it was fine. And then it really wasn't until I got to college where I was like, oh, everybody's like, I'm physically watching people pull out of the parking lot with their families to go home for a month. And it hit me. And I was like, oh shit, you know, and like you said, everyone's going to experience that differently based on where they are in their journey. And I think a lot of people do the trauma comparison thing where it's like, well, you know, I didn't have to deal with that when I was seven. So like my experience isn't as bad or I shouldn't feel this way. And it's like, no, you should feel however you want to feel. Your experience is yours. Nobody can take that away from you as much as other people, you know, like your foster family or these girls from high school that are like, oh my God, I would have saved you. I wish I knew. Like, no, nobody can take that away from you. That's that's yours. And who you became through all throughout all of that, that's also yours. And if you like who you became, awesome. And if you don't, like you're never stuck as any version of yourself that you became to survive. Like we're constantly growing and evolving, but honoring those pieces of yourself is important because like, you know, I always talk about habits and behavior change. And it's like, if you have a habit that's annoying and hard to break, you probably developed it as a survival mechanism. And instead of just being like, oh my God, you're 30 and you're still biting your nails. What the fuck is wrong with you? Can you just like take a second and be like, hey, biting my nails helped me get through some really difficult times in my life. Like, thank you to my brain and body for like figuring that out. Cause that could have been much worse. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. And just there's something so important about standing in your truth with these experiences because no one can tell you what you have experienced and how you experienced it. So I think that's something I'll take away from today as we wrap up. Cause I'm like, everything that we just talked about is really spinning in my head and confident isn't the word, but I guess like, I feel like I can leave this more honest with myself and be like, yeah, you're doing the work surrounding something that's really important to you. And no one can tell you that it isn't important and no one can tell you that it didn't happen. But for the listeners, um, if you are experiencing this phenomenon or you have, just know that you are not the only person experiencing it, but also don't, don't compare your timeline to someone else's. Don't compare your trauma to someone else's. You know, it's, it's hard and it's hard to not do that, but also don't let anyone tell you how to feel as you're experiencing it, because what's most important is your safety, whether or not you're okay, your survival. And at the end of the day, what you take from that experience. So 
Yes. And I think your documentary is going to be really helpful to help showcase that and help people feel less alone. So when is that coming out? Because I want to make sure I link it down below for everyone. Yeah. So that's going to be coming out on September 1st. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yes. First, um, I'm super excited. Um, I'm nervous, but I'm, I'm really excited actually. So yeah. Yay. Awesome. Well, I am super proud of you for being you and for everything that you're doing. Do you have anything that you want to leave folks with? Mm, yeah. Uh, follow me on Instagram. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I mean, like we could. Is that where is that where they can learn more about this project too? Are you going to post about it? Yep, I am. So the Instagram handle is... I'll link it for them. But yeah, yeah yeah, housing injustice. So I don't know, just keep an eye out for the project. Uh, thanks for listening to all these things. And um, yeah, just keep being fucking amazing. You know, yeah. just keep doing what makes you happy and don't let anyone tell you how to feel ever. Mm -hmm.